Welcome to Agatha Christie, She Watched, our spoiler-heavy look at the movie and TV adaptations of the mystery genre's greatest writer. I'm Bill Peschel of Peschel Press, publisher of the annotated novels of Agatha Christie, and today we're talking about hot nursery governesses, patient attorneys, foreign doctors, and PP letters. We're talking about the 1985 episode The Moving Finger, starring Joan Hickson as Miss Marple. But first, let me introduce my partner in marriage, as well as crime of the fictional kind, Teresa Peschel. Hello, Teresa. How you doing? Hi, Bill. It's always such a pleasure to be here with you in the little office under the stairs. And The Moving Finger is one of Agatha's 12 Marple novels, and it is a winner. Unfortunately, some of the best aspects of the novel did not make it into the Joan Hickson adaptation. This is one of those times when I actually kind of liked the ITV Marple better, despite its flaws. Now, this is actually the second time we've seen this, because we saw this in December of two years ago, just when we were starting the Agatha Christie She Watched. Oh my God, that long ago? It was that long ago. You've got the review up on our website at specialpress.com, and you didn't particularly like this particular version. Has has it changed over uh, the rewatch? No, I think the same issues are still there. Let's start with Elsie, the nursery governess. Well, we may want to just go into the background of this first, because first of all, PP letters, this is... This is Mr. Pie, and this was something that the script writer made up, because I do not think Mr. Pie said this in the novel. Right. Poison pen letters. And that's what this novel is about. It's in a small village in which poison pen letters are circulating and everybody is wondering who did it, who's sending them, which disaffected female, because that's the assumption, did this. And it ends in murder. Two murders, as a matter of fact. The novel brings this out, but the episode does not. Miss Marple, she comes on very late in the novel, but of course, because this is the Marple TV show, Miss Marple has to appear on the scene within uh, minutes of the opening, and of course she does. Miss Marple notices in the novel, and she doesn't say that here, and I think that this is a definite flaw in the film adaptation. The Poison Pen Letters all feel real in how they are written and what they say. And the reason being is, of course, because Edward Symington, a lawyer, is copying them from a case that he knew about that took place in the north of England. But what Miss Marple notices, people kind of talk about it, but they don't really pinpoint what it is that's wrong with the poison letters. But Miss Marple does. They don't apply to incidents happening in the village. They're scurrilous, they sound extremely personal, and then you realize that in general, they don't really seem to match up with what is happening with, with actual village scandals. The closest is Jerry and Joanna Burton being accused of not being brother and sister. Now, these are the people, they just moved to the village because Jerry Burton is a pilot who was injured. And he needs a nice, quiet place to recuperate. And Joanna is his sister. So they move to the village of Limestone. I think it's Limestock in the Limestock. book. Limestock. But it's Limestone in the episode. And they rent a house. And part of the story involves them getting to know the villagers, meeting Mr. Pye, the confirmed bachelor, meeting Edward Symington, who's a lawyer, Owen Griffith, who's the foreign doctor. because He's, he's foreign from, because he's from Wales. From Wales oh, all, my God. <laughs> <laughs> who also has a sister, Errol. 
I believe, who's yes, acting is, as his secretary. Yes, I don't know why they changed her name. It was a Ami in the novel with a fancy Frenchy spelling. I don't know why they changed her name, but they did. So when the poison pen letter reaches the Burtons at the beginning of the episode, it assumes that they're not really brother and sister. Which could sort of be construed, you know, they're they're obvious strangers, and in the novel they don't look that much alike. Here, well, with actors and actresses, it's kind of hard to match up, so they actually do look like they could be related to each other. What I was saying is that the poison pen letters, although people are getting them, they don't really seem to be clued in to what is actually happening in the village. And if you have ever been part of a, a church advisory board, if you're on the school board, if you are part of the quilting society, you know what all the stories are. You, If you are willing to listen, keep your mouth shut and listen to the stories going on around you, you get a pretty good idea of who is actually cheating with who. Miss Marple notices that the letters, while they feel accurate, don't quite seem to match the people they have been sent to. Well, that makes sense, and that's kind of highlighted when Dr. Griffith mentions that he's only been living in the village for eight years. And if this was written by a woman who is a lifelong resident of the village, she would know all the stories. Yes, she would know every single story in the village. Now, I have to admit, I want to say that there are some little bits here that I was really pleased to see. It was really interesting. And we had talked about this before, how the older Miss Marples with Joan Hickson shows a village that really looks a village. It's not manicured grounds. It's not looking like something of a Disneyland version of a quaint English village. This looks like a working village. Yes, it does. You know, some of that might be the film stock, which is now, let's see, this was shot, this was released in 1985. So it was filmed in like early 1985 or 1984. So that makes it 15 and 22, almost 40 years old. But even so, despite 40-year-old film stock, it does not look like everything has been freshly vacuumed and power washed, which is what happens with the ITV marbles. Every single village, every piece of grass, every shrub looked like the gardeners had just been passed with hedge clippers and the rakes. You knew that they had just cleaned the entire place. This looks lived in. And the some of the characters definitely looked lived in as well, because remember when Joanna comes out of church, I think it was um, Angela Symington calling her a painted lady because she dared to wear makeup. Yes, she was wearing makeup And they were church. two rustic villagers who were kind of commenting. You see them come in and out, and they look rustic they, they look you know. they they look like they have been doing hard work in all kinds of weather for their entire lives these are the cleats by the way mr cleat is the gardener and mrs cleat is kind of like the local hedge witch they look like real people in fact that's one thing i really have to say that i approve of in the joan hickson marples is every person they cast looks like a real person now that doesn't always work which brings me to megan simmington she is whiny. She is off-putting. You cannot understand why Jerry Burton falls madly in love with her. I can understand why he was attracted first by Elsie Holland, because she is a very pretty blonde. She's the governess to the Simmingtons. Yes, she's the governess to the Simmingtons. two boys in addition to Megan, who's Megan Hunter, because she's the step stepdaughter. Stepdaughter. Excuse me, stepdaughter. So she, and she's 20 years old. Megan is... Uh, 
you you look at her and you can't understand why Jerry Burton would pay any attention to her at all because there's nothing there to pay attention to other than she is blonde. She doesn't sound great. She whines. She bitches about her sad life. She's not funny or self-deprecating. She's not incredibly attractive. There's nothing there. Now, I understand why he's not that interested in Elsie once he starts seeing more of her. In the novel, he falls in love with Elsie. He sees Elsie and, oh my God, she is so beautiful. And then she opens her mouth and her voice is flat and nasal and she is a very competent young woman. And but but she when sounds she sounds like Fran Drescher. But when she talks, <laughs> all the magic flees, and you just don't see her as the princess in the castle. Well, you don't see Megan as the princess in the castle who needs to be rescued either. She just seems whiny. But does is there anything about Elsie in the episode? That is off-putting. I never quite understood. No, that the she the only one is voice. she. The, she has a normal voice, and when you see her, she's kind of bland. She's kind of bland. She is definitely prettier than the actress playing Megan, but she's kind of bland, and that's what she should be because you mm. see someone who is very pretty, and then as you get to know them, you realize that there's not really that much there, and the voice is kind of off-putting. She's got kind of a screechy voice. But she's very competent at what she does, and as long as she keeps her mouth shut and does her stuff, raising the boys as the nursery governess, she's great. Well, and they solved that problem with the uh, with the remake of it of the Moving Finger, which is actually I still they was went so that. far in the other direction that you can't understand why Jerry Burton pays any attention to Megan Symington at all when he's got that stunning brunette in the sundress with you know with traffic stopping cleavage. You, you simply cannot understand why he isn't panting after her along with every other man within, you know, 10 square miles. Right. That was played by Kelly Brook, who I believe is a model. And she was one of those, you know, she was cast for her looks. And yeah, you see her in that cleavage bearing sundress. And it you was very one, right it was up wonderful. And took notice. <laughs> the, the, the 2006 <laughs> version also had British film director Ken Russell playing Reverend Calthrop. And Ken Russell is an eccentric. He is a British eccentric, and he played it very well <laughs> in that one as well. One of the things that's really interesting about watching the two Miss Marple adaptations is they're so different. This is why if you're going to watch the Agatha Christie films, you should try and watch them in pairs. Watch one version, then watch the other version, because they take the exact same story and they can make it so different without actually changing anything important, like the identity of a murderer, which the ITV marples sometimes do. But getting back to Joan Hickson, it was competently done. I think Megan was woefully miscast because I saw no reason why Jerry Burton would fall madly in love with her. He started out on two canes and then he switched to one and then suddenly he was on no cane and he recovered more quickly than I would have thought that he yeah, would. That's the thing. He injured his leg. So he was walking about on two canes at the beginning of the episode and his doctor recommended dropping one of them so his leg would have to be forced to strengthen itself. And yeah, over the time period, which we don't really know what kind of passage of time was going on. But it was relatively it was months, quick. But it was fairly quick, but at least they took it seriously. In the novel, the clues are all there if you're willing to pay attention. And here, I just don't know that the clues were all there, even though Miss Marple showed up on the scene very early because she didn't say... 
She wasn't very specific about saying what actually happened. What is the fire under the smoke? Because everybody all through the novel, and they do do it a little bit here, they all say there's no smoke without fire. Well, that's true. But the fire that generates the smoke is what matters. And you don't really get Miss Marple saying that one thing happened and one thing only. And that is Mrs. Symington died. Who benefits from Mrs. Symington's death? Joan Hickson plays Miss Marple as a dithery old lady to perfection. And yet at the same time, she comes across as so dithery that why would the police inspector listen to anything that she says? I watched this and I just thought that Miss Marple wouldn't have been quite so dumb, mm -hmm. quite so vague, mm -hmm. quite so... I want you to think of this as being your own idea, because if you think it's coming from me, you won't listen. We've seen better examples of this. Oh, in, yes. In Helen Hayes did this really, really well in this was a Caribbean mystery. And she got the Caribbean policeman to believe everything oh, that she right. said. She made him think it was his own idea, his own worries. Yeah. But here it was just too... Well, we also miss the characteristic Miss Marple tactic of saying, this reminds me of. Yes, absolutely. And absolutely. There, like you said, there would be cases where she would say there were perfect instances where this would have been possible. Wasn't there also something else about Miss Marple saying this doesn't sound like it was written by a woman in the book? She recognized the tone in the letters as being off. And maybe that was the details. And I think the reason why she recognized the tone in the letters being off is because the vicar's wife, Mrs. Calthrop, she was able to tell Miss Marple that the real scandals were ignored. And one of the real scandals is that you had Edward Symington, his wife, Angela, a different name in the film, of course, because you have to change something to justify the screenwriter's salary, and the governess, the nursery governess, because Elsie Holland, nursery governess, is, well, we've all read those stories about Hollywood celebrities, and they end up running off with the nursery governess. I think Robin Williams did that, and so did Jude oh, Law. Let's see, Jimmy Buffett did briefly, and Arnold only impregnated his. And there's something about the sweet, adorable, gorgeous, young caretaker uh, caretaker of your children because your wife is a high-powered woman and why should she pay any attention to the kids when she can hire hot young nursery governesses <laughs> to do it for her and i guess she's outsourcing that part of her marital duties too so who knows but <laughs> but my point is and i do have one and i will get there eventually i promise well the gossip is more interesting <laughs> oh, i said that part out loud didn't i Yes, you did. But Elsie Holland, and this is something that Jane Marple notices, Elsie Holland, of all the people in the village, why didn't she get a letter saying, look at you, you hussy, angling to steal that distinguished, rich lawyer whose sons you are already taking care of? If it had been a real poison pen letter writer in the village, an actual woman who knew all the local scandals or all the potential for local scandals to cause trouble, that would have been noticed. And Elsie Holland didn't get a letter until Dr. Griffin's sister wrote one and she wrote the letter to Elsie because she had been in love with Edward Symington for years. 
And he is, you know, he's a well-favored man. He is very capable. He's calm. He's very professional. He's well off. I mean, he's a great catch. He right. is an absolute great catch. And, and his you, wife was a, was a kind of a bitch. And you can see why he is a great catch. That's why Dr. Owens' sister, Errol Griffin, has a crush on him. That's why his secretary, Miss Ginch, has a crush on him. And I would guess that other other ladies in the village may have crushes on him. And Elsie Holland doesn't. She is a very competent young woman, and that's just not the way she thinks. She just doesn't have that, uh, she just isn't that way. A woman in the village, a longtime resident, would have recognized instantly that this is a subject for a poison pen letter. Look at that blonde hussy in the Symington household, and here you are insinuating yourself into their marital life, getting between them, making sure the boys love her more than their mother. Then when Mrs. Symington dies and Elsie stays in the household because somebody has to take care of the boys, well, you can see where this is going, and yet she doesn't get a letter until Errol Griffith, the doctor's sister, writes to him and she typewrites the letter on which the is same also typewriter different. on the, it turns out to be the same typewriter that the envelopes were written that were used to mail the previous poison pen letters which were clipped out of a book yes and book. she she uses the typewriter but again that is again her letters are different from the real ones because the real ones were cut out of a book to completely disguise them right and that's what miss marple picks up on is that why was this one typewritten from her and while all the other ones were cutouts and so you hear all the way, there's no smoke without fire. There's no smoke without fire. And then Miss, Miss Marple finally announces what really happened. And I have seen this in so many Agatha Christie novels now. I've seen Miss Marple say this. I have seen Boirot say this numerous times. And I'm sure there have been other detectives. When you come down to it, what actually happened? You brush away all of the frills and all of the extraneous material what actually happened is Mrs. Symington died. Who benefits from Mrs. Symington's death? Why, her husband does, because he is free of an annoying, nagging wife who is no longer the woman that he married. He gets to keep his status in the village. He gets to keep all of his money. He gets to keep his sons. And he gets to marry the beautiful, blonde nursery governess who would never talk back to him and is achingly competent at running a household. So he benefits in every way. Definitely a step up and without the messiness and status loss of a divorce. And that's something else that as a modern audience, we don't really understand. When Agatha published The Moving Finger, this was in 1942, divorce was still scandalous among upper class people or middle class to upper class people, if you really move up to the top of the food chain, people up there do whatever they damn well please because they don't care what you think. And people at the bottom of the food chain do whatever they damn well please because they don't care what they don't care nobody about respectability. Nobody cares about what they do. Yeah, nobody cares what they do and they're not worried about being respectable. But in that in-between stage, and Edward Symington... middle class. Yes, Edward Symington lawyer, his respectability is really important. Oh, he's not a lawyer. He's a solicitor. Right. Uh, for you Americans, I had to have this explained to me. England has two kinds of lawyers. They have solicitors who do all of the day-to-day -day work, and then you have barristers who put on the fancy robe and the big wig and then go present a case uh, before His Majesty the King. And I can say His Majesty the King now because England now has a king again after something, what, 75 years? Seems like that. But now it's His Majesty the King. 
Mr. Symington is a solicitor, and it matters very much that he remain respectable and above board. Particularly in a small village where everybody talks. He's the only solicitor in the village. He takes care of everybody's legal needs, which means he knows everybody's dirty secrets about money. He can't afford a scandal. So for him, murdering his wife, as long as he can get away with it, works. Yes, well, his wife committed suicide. It's just... It's so sad. It's it's so sad. sad. And it makes him out to be the victim. But when you're watching any of the adaptations or reading the novel, strip away all of the extraneous stuff and ask yourself what actually happened and then follow the money. Mm -hmm. Although they didn't mention it in the film, I think there was some money there too. It might have been the case, was it she had the money in the family? Yeah, she had some of the money from her uh, previous worthless husband or from relatives or something like that. I I enjoyed this a lot. There was a lot to like about this. I enjoyed this, and I think part of the reason is that through our watching of of almost 200 Agatha Christie adaptations, and I think we have hit 200 by now, this came upon the um, heels heels of the French They Were Ten, which was, and then there were none over five and almost five and a half hours. You know, this it's really nice to not watch a torture scene in which someone is having their toenails yanked off with a pair of pliers. I have to say, this is really nice. Even within 95 minutes, the, uh, no, sorry, an hour and 42 minutes. They took their time with the characters. Actually, that became a drawback in the second half because Mr. Pie, who is really a fun character, completely vanished from the second half of the show. He should have been there helping the women in the women women's, the, the ladies' institute. church auxiliary. The women's Institute. Yeah, at the Women's Institute. He should have been helping them get everything set up for the, for the annual fete to raise money for the new roof for the church because that's exactly the sort of thing that Mr. Pie would do. Uh, they were even having... Uh, singer rehearse in the hall and he should be there directing the show i guess it was some kind of performance so of course yeah and 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 we lose mr pie we have mr pie figuring prominently in the first half of the episode and then he vanishes completely for no discernible reason other than that the plot demanded he disappear now in the later version in the 2007 version 2007-2008, he has a bigger role. Oh, yes, and it's actually tied to a murder uh, Uh, or a suicide of a a widowed colonel. Suspected of being his partner. Yes, suspected of being his partner, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and then they don't do anything with it. They give you that beautiful plot thread, and then they... Leave it dangling. Give it a little bit of gravitas. And of course, that's one of the things, wasn't that one of the things about the movie, about uh, Poison Pen Letters, is that they worry that sometimes it may strike home, that the accusations might actually be true? Yes. And see, that is, again, what Miss Marple says in the novel, is the accusations and some of the Poison Pen Letters, they were kind of rewritten for the episode. Some of them weren't. But a lot of them, it just didn't seem to fit what was actually happening in the village. Whereas if you lived in the village, you would know and the letters would all strike home. You know, you would write a letter to Mrs. Cleet, the uh, the gardener's wife, who's also a hedge witch. I know that girl you gave the potion to killed her. Didn't just kill the unwanted baby that she wanted to disguise. It killed her, too. Mm-hmm. You would know. Yeah. You would know. Yeah. Here, they don't 
quite know. And so there's that concern, oh, the letter will actually hit home. But if you really had someone tied in, their letters would all hit home because they would already know the stories. Right. I keep thinking of the 2007 version and maybe I'll have to sit down and watch it again because there, there were some of it really, really great stuff great in there. Stuff. Part of it was the camera work because I'm remembering the funeral scene in which they put the camera inside the grave and the minister, Ken Russell, is throwing dirt on the camera with everybody looking down at the camera. Oh, yes, we're going to use that as the banner in the book. And we're yeah. having a discussion of what we can actually use as the banner for this review in the book. And I guess it's going to have to be the poison pen letter on the floor because there's no real dramatic scene like you know, that. Whereas whoever directed that really looked at the dramatic possibilities. Because I think before that, when they were bringing the coffin out to the to the grave site, they put the camera up in the steeple shooting down, which is very dramatic looking. But I'm also wanting to contrast Megan's transformation into a woman and how it was done here versus how they did it and actually used it to kind of advance the plot as well. Yeah, here they there's actually a very lengthy scene where Megan goes from a Hollywood ugly duckling to a Hollywood swan. <laughs> it starts with her seeing Jerry off on the train to London. He's going to London and Just, she just is kind of hanging around because she's got nothing else to do in the village. Yes, and she's not doing anything with herself either. Right. And her mother complains about this, and her stepfather complains about this. She kind of complains about this, but she doesn't get up off her lazy ass and do anything, because it's easier just to drift aimlessly. And again, you watch this particular actress and think, what a cipher. What on earth does Jerry Burton see in her when there's got to be somebody else within 10 square miles who's more attractive than her? Anybody! And he sweeps her off her feet and takes her to London with him. For no discernible reason. And decides to play Pygmalion. And, and he says, I'm going to be, you're going to be my Eliza Doodle and I'm going to be Professor, Professor Higgins. Higgins. Professor Higgins. Higgins. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I mean, she is supposed to be a reasonably well-educated girl for her class. And Megan says, who? And I think, wow, you're not just vapid, you're dumb. Well, she's brought up in a small village without much in the way of communications. I can, I can sort of see but that. But she Pygmalion... was of a class where if she went off to school, and in the novel they tell you that she's come home from school, like a girl's boarding school, oh, okay. she would have learned this. Okay, because Pygmalion was the Shaw play from like the teens and it was a popular play yes it was, it was. This, but this was before my fair lady the musical but also pygmalion it wasn't just that pygmalion was a popular play it was a greek myth and she would have learned this in school mm, yeah because she actually had an education because she's of the class where she was supposed to be a reasonably educated young woman because she was going to do something with her life being a, a rich man's wife but she wasn't expected to spend her life scrubbing other women's floors on her knees like yeah. a servant she was in that that middle class class where you have pretensions to respectability and one of them is being educated and yeah they would have sent her off to boarding school if only just to get her out of the house that's right and she would have learned something and she comes yeah. across as completely ignorant they go to london and what follows is a series of still photographs tone blue of her getting her hair cut although she didn't really have much 
She didn't have enough hair to be cut in as it was, and and that's something. But they styled it better. But they styled it better. They gave her some curls and styled it better, and she got a dress that fit and proper stockings and a little touch of makeup. And it's amazing how somebody who is already pretty can become really pretty, uh, (laughs) because they never start with anybody who looks normal. (laughs) Didn't really transform her too much, but instead of being kind of a rustic girl to something with a little more sophistication, a little more class. Whereas in the 2007 version. I think it was Joanna that took her in hand, wasn't yeah, it? Yes, that Megan actually had her hair in pigtails, like a 14-year-old would. And when she is made over, she really does look different, and it became part of the plot. Because they displayed her off at a dinner party as kind of a surprise for the family and guests. And it was a surprise. It was a shock, and the parents, I think they still said, what was it, you know, just get that makeup off. Why are you looking like that? And just... <laughs> You painted trollop. You painted trollop, and you could see the defeat in her eyes. You know, she she felt beautiful for the first time in her life, and her parents just totally dissed her. We'll have to watch that one again. I think. I think so too. I, I like, think I think so. we'll I have like to watch that, that we're, one. We're spending more time talking about that episode than this. I think that kind of tells you all you need to know about, about this version. I'm afraid so. I'm afraid so. And yet, this was still a good episode. There's only two versions of the moving finger. This one and the ITV version. And like I said, it is really worth watching the two of them one after the other because they take the exact same story, the exact same major characters. The same plot points. They follow all the same plot points, and yet you have a very different movie. I can't say that that is always true, particularly with the ITV versions, because sometimes ITV really heads off into a new direction with a new murderer. And I'm looking (laughs) at you body in the library where you changed the identity (laughs) and rationale of the murderer but these two versions of the moving finger they didn't do that they followed the plot but like (laughs) the results were very different again it's casting and it's direction and you have to also account the fact that it was god knows 20 years easily 25 years between the two so you know film technology was a little bit better like i said the the first one is a warm bath and this one is like a little maybe a martini you know kind of a stinger to it uh you mean the itv version the itv version yeah Yeah, something a little spicier a little more extra to it this worked fine this is a very good episode it gives you do not have to read the novel if you want to avoid it and you will still know everything you need to know about the plot so you can discuss it at a dinner party i enjoyed it yeah. I enjoyed it, but the I enjoyed the other one more. Much more. To mention at the end where everybody is relieved, the lawyer is taken off to jail and to be hung, and they ask Miss Marple if she needs anything else, and she says, how about tea for everyone? And all I can think of is, is really, we just saw a family destroyed. That's right. The mother's right. dead. The father is arrested and going to be hanged. The boys are orphaned. The governess runs off. And abandons them. And abandons them. And Megan, of course, her mother just died. And what, And is she going to take care of her half-brothers because she is the only family member left now who is reasonably close. So if Jerry Burton marries Megan, he suddenly is going to get two young boys in his household, too, because what else are you going to do with these kids? And this Miss Marple says, you know, a nice cup of tea and a biscuit. And well, yeah, fade out, and there's the oboes and the, uh, you know, the the theme song. The yobos? Oboes. 
Oh, the oboes. Yes, the, the oboes. Playing, uh, yes, the, the oboes that mark Miss Marple. Yes. And and yes, and and I would take a cup of tea and a biscuit, but I would <laughs> want my tea sorry. to be heavily laced with spiced rum and lots of sugar because I would need it. <laughs> This, like all the Joan Hickson marples, and I don't know if we're going to podcast any of the other Joan Hickson marples, I'll say that right now. I don't know because it depends on what Agatha Christie she watched needs in terms of reviews and other material. But they're all worth watching. Yeah. They were beautifully done. And the one thing I can say about the Joan Hickson marples as opposed to ITVs is all of Joan Hickson's are true to the novel. And even when they are not good, they're still very watchable. Yeah. Whereas the ITV marbles, you never know what you are going <laughs> to get. And they ranged from really fantastic, including for non-marble properties, to truly dreadful. You did not know what you were going to get. But Joan Hickson was uniformly good to excellent. In part, that was the BBC's intention and the family's intention because Rosamund Christie was still alive. She was Agatha's still alive and, and she was not putting up... She would have had kittens if she would have seen what <laughs> ITV well, did. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid so. This concludes another episode of Agatha Christie She Watched. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to look for our website to find out if we have any upcoming events. And remember, this is all going to become Agatha Christie She Watched. A book that we're going to come out with early next year. Thank you very much for listening. Be sure to hit the like and subscribe button if you're on YouTube. <laughs> I'm hearing that now, so I'm starting to uh, starting to absorb some of their mannerisms. Oh, is that what we're supposed to ask? Yeah. Oh, oh, oh okay, okay. Well, folks, them, if you yeah. if if you would do that, that would be nice. <laughs> and we'll see you at the movies. Bye bye. Bye bye.